By the Almighty, I declare, I will build a house of prayer unto all people and unto him. Unto him do you hear. Yes, him. I don't care of your opinion of him or my opinion of him or anyone's opinion of him. I shall set a perpetual deed in the courts so that it shall endure forever. And I will build a schoolhouse and a meeting house so that any child may be free to learn and any adult free to worship in whatever their way. Those were the words of Richard Allen, who was one of the first non-indigenous owners of the land that we are currently on. I say non-indigenous owners because truly this is the land of the Shawnee people who were displaced to Nebraska and Oklahoma. But Richard Allen ended up on this land and he built his farmhouse here. It was hundreds of acres before we bought it, of course. And he was a very devout Christian man. He would go to church every single Sunday. He'd go to every meeting at the church, everything that they were doing. And he would just sit in church and listen. He'd listen to the preacher. He'd listen to the elders who were the board. He'd listen to his fellow congregants. And then he would want to discuss. He would want to challenge the preacher, challenge the elders, challenge the people sitting next to him. And in that challenging, he would say, I want to discuss what is the nature of Jesus? What is heaven and hell? What is salvation? What, is it? what are all these things? And they didn't want that. They started getting a little uncomfortable with his questions. And they took him aside and they said, you, start, you keep questioning, um, we're going to have to ask you to leave. And they were starting to get ready to ask Richard Allen to leave the church. And he saw the writing on the wall. And that's when he had that revelation from God. That's what he believed. I will build a house of prayer unto all people so that any child may learn and anyone be free to worship. And so he built that house of prayer just down the hill from where we are on Higby Mill Road. Another church stands there now and has encapsulated it. It was called the Republican Meeting House. Many of you know this story. And the Republican Meeting House had a way different meaning back in the 1700s. <laughs> but he built that house of prayer, that meeting house for people, and he invited them to come. He didn't care what they believed. He just wanted them there. And there wasn't a single preacher. He would invite preachers from all over, friends, people in other churches around here. If they had a Sunday off, it was much rarer back then. He would invite preachers from any denomination. And I'm sure there were some Unitarians or Universalists that were invited because we did have a presence in Kentucky in the 1700s and 1800s. It was a presence that sadly didn't endure, but we were here. He didn't care what they believed, if they preached heresy, if they preached orthodoxy. He wanted to hear it and discuss it because for him, the heart of Christianity was in having that freedom to discuss, to discern, to grow. That is why he wanted to have that at the Republican Meeting House. So it's kind of cool that we ended up, the Unitarian Universalists, buying this property where the Republican Meeting House was. I don't know the story of why we lost that piece of land, and I'll let our archivist figure that out. But we still have the original farmhouse on this property. It's not hundreds of acres. It's seven acres now. But we still have the original house where Richard Allen lived. But this isn't just a story about Richard Allen. This isn't just a story about the Shawnee people, though we do need to remember that. This is a story about all the other people who lived on this land when Richard Allen was here. It's a story about his family, of which there were many. It's a story of the people he would hire to come work. But it's also the story of the people that were forced to work this land. 
the slaves that Richard Allen owned. Now, I don't know if we just thought maybe he was a great guy <laughs> and he didn't do that, but he was a person of his time and he owned countless slaves. Many of whom we will never know their names, we won't know the exact number, but we do know the names of 24 slaves that he put in his will to divide among his children and to give to his wife. This isn't just Richard Allen's story today. It isn't just the Shawnee people. It isn't just us. This is the story of the 24 slaves that we know and the countless names that we will not know. It's the story of the slaves that were given to Richard Allen's children for them to be divided amongst themselves however they chose as if they were tchotchkes being given by their father. It's a story of Viney, Ben, Tom, Spencer, George, Rachel, Maria, Philip, Adam, Sarah, Letty, Bob, Achilles, Moses, Scott, Hannah, Handy, Judy, Caroline, Sally, and the hardest name on this list is Darkie. It's also the story of the three other slaves that Richard Allen told, his, told that they would have their freedom only if they could pay for it. It was Jerry, it was Alexander, and it was Mary. We don't know what kind of slave owner Richard Allen was. We may never know. We don't know. Was he one of the good ones if you own slaves? I don't know what that means. But when you look at the names that he gave some of them, Viney, Handy, Darkie, you start to learn who Richard Allen was. And he would go this early religious liberal, right? He would go into the freed slave communities and preach to them, but he still owned people. He still put them in his will as if it was my favorite tea kettle to be given to my daughter. This is the story of those people as well, and the countless ones that we will never know, the names we will never hear. It's amazing what you can find in probate records, but the records of Cheapside, I doubt we will ever find those. This is their story, and it's a story that we are bringing to all of us here today. Now, it's a story to be mindful of, right? You can't walk very far or be very, go very far in Kentucky without confronting the issue of slavery. You know, I often forget that. I'm from Chicago, though we had our own history of race, right, that we need to unpack and dig into. But this is a story that we are called to be mindful of as the Unitarian Universalists who bought this remnant of land with Richard Allen's original house on the property. We're called to remember this because we are a living tradition. And what that means is that we are stewards of history. We are stewards of that story of the land we inhabit. We are stewards of the stories of all of our history, of when the Universalists would preach free unending love of God and be thrown in jail and sentenced to death. We steward that history too. We steward the history of the Unitarians in Hungary and Romania when Ceausescu would break the dams and flood their villages without evacuating the people. So many Unitarian villages were flooded and that was in the late 80s and early 90s. It's the story of all of us sitting in this room right now. Whether you've been a longtime member or you're visiting today, it's your story too. But when we are stewards of the past, what does that exactly mean? It doesn't mean we're bogged down by the past, that it's going to hold on to us forever, that we can't do anything with it. You hear this in churches a lot. Well, we tried that three years ago, so we can't possibly ever do it again, right? 
well, we had this history of Richard Allen owning people on this property, so let's go burn down the Allen house. Let's change the name. Let's never speak of it again. Let's throw every brick into the heap. It's not about being weighed down by the past. It's about owning it. And it's about embodying the past. So what does that mean to embody the past? What does it mean to embody it? It means that in this room right now is Richard Allen. It's the Shawnee people. It's the slaves that Richard Allen owned. It's each and every one of you. It's the generations that have made this community possible. Not in a spiritual way, in a supernatural way, but in the reality that we carry their stories with us. That is a great responsibility for every single one of us to have. That's a hard responsibility. We carry those stories, we make them come alive, and we embody those stories. We embody those stories because they tell us what we are going to do as a people. What are we going to do as a people? How are we going to use this information about Richard Allen, who still did some great things in his life, right? He was an early religious radical. How do we own that story and use it to guide us as the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington? That is the question that we all need to be asking. We need to recognize it. We need to move on from it and guide, it, guide ourselves into the future. Part of this is because we are a living tradition and we do steward these stories. But beyond just stewarding the stories, we are guided by our seven principles and six sources. Now, some people read those things. They're in your hymnals if you have never read them before. They're out in the foyer. They're hanging on walls. Sometimes we have little pocket cards in our wallets that have the seven principles and six sources. But how do we embody those as well? How do we embody the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism every single day of our lives? How will that guide us knowing the information we know? Now, those sources are really agreeable. We covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. I've given that to folks who think hellfire and damnation is a real thing, and they go, that's nice. How could anyone disagree with those things? How could anyone disagree with the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part? How could anyone disagree with everyone having a voice, a democratic voice? How could anyone disagree with truth, equity, and justice in human relations? Who could disagree with those things? But those principles... <laughs> Inherent worth and dignity. Because here it is, here it is, here it is, right? Living our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every single person. Every single person. Every single person. I always use the example of start with the person that gave you the finger while driving. Why don't you start with yourself as well? Do you have worth and dignity? Does a very public figure who stands in opposition to everything we believe, and I'm not telling you who, you know, hey, I'm not naming anyone. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Because there's many folks in this world who don't believe people have worth and dignity. How do we recognize theirs? And that is what we are called to do as a living tradition. Steward the past and the stories that we have inherited and do something with them. And the seven principles are a guide for doing something, for honoring worth and dignity, for recognizing the interdependent web of existence that does not mean there's separation between us. We're still diverse 
but there is no separation. You are part of this world just as I am. All of you are part of this world just as I am. That is what we are called to do as a living tradition. But the other reason we call ourselves that, and it's, you know, our hymnals are named that, singing the living tradition, right? And we put it on things, we brand things, it's really nice sounding. But part of what being a living tradition means is that it's not just stewarding and embodying and living out our principles. At the end of the day, though, being a living tradition means that a commitment to our values is a commitment to change. Changing ourselves. I hope every single person in here has arrived at a different spirit on a spiritual path than when they first came here. I really do hope that. And if it's similar, that's great. I hope it has depth and it's nurturing you or that you've discovered a new philosophy or a new way of being in the world. We're called to change ourselves. We're also called to change this church. Sure, we tried something in 1950. How can we do it better? How can we change who we are as a people here, the church on the hill? We're also called to change our communities. Our seven principles call us to justice. Justice doesn't mean just sitting there and thinking about it and being all happy about, well, I did good, I did justice, I thought about it today. It means getting our hands dirty, even if it's a small act. Even if it's filling out a petition, sending an email to your congressman or your senator, it's small acts that do add up whatever you can do. And for some of you, I know you're working on every campaign, you're at every march, you're at every rally, and that's good too, don't burn yourself out. But we're also called to change our world as well. There's a lot of evil in our world. And people often ask, how does you, you define evil if it, there's no devil and, there's, you know, and God is sometimes there? And what do we do? How do we define evil? Evil is destruction of life. We affirm and uplift anything that is life-affirming and life-building, and it's the destruction of those things. That's what I would call you, you, evil, right? But not just the world, not just ourselves, not just Lexington, Kentucky, we're called to change Unitarian Universalism as well. And this is where the eighth principle comes in. We have seven principles. We've had seven principles since 1985, I believe. Uh, so I was, I was born a little earlier than that. I'm, I'll date myself there. But we are called to consider now and again how our principles can change. How are they meeting the demands of right now? And the history of those principles, they look nothing like 1961 when we first merged as Unitarians and Universalists. Nothing like it. And they look nothing like what the Unitarians had. It looked nothing like what the Universalists had. And they went through several revisions. And they were last revised in 1995 when they changed one of the words and they had to go through years of committee meetings. Um, but at first there were six. There were six principles of Unitarian Universalism. And we added the seventh in response to the women's movement within UUism and in response to earth-centered traditions that were calling us to feel that connection with the earth. Right now we're being called to consider again how Unitarian Universalism can change, how it can grow, how it can embody the history of our nation, of our place right here. Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism has put a call out to every single congregation in our association to consider the eighth principle of Unitarian Universalism. Now I'll read it to you, but I'm going to ask you to hold off on wanting, you have it in front of you, but hold off on wanting to wordsmith it, because it's not complete. 
We covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. That is really wordy right now, right? And the UU instinct is to be like, oh, we need to have a committee meeting and tell them what it should really say. But what Black Lives of UU is asking all of our congregations to do is to read this, to discuss it, to not wordsmith it, to get behind the spirit of this eighth principle, to figure out, are we a congregation that wants to adopt this so that we can urge the national body of Unitarian Universalists to add an eighth principle? There are several congregations that have adopted it. They've had to change uh, a lot of their posters. They've had to probably pencil it in their hymnals. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a huge undertaking. But there's several that have began adopting this, and they're starting to figure out what does it mean to live that? What does it mean to have it as a distinct principle where we are dismantling oppression in our society? Sure, the other principles mention justice. The other principles mention worth and dignity. But if it's its own thing, the bedrock of Unitarian Universalism, how will that change how we move throughout this world? That is what Black Lives of UU is asking all of us to consider. So what are we going to do about that? We have a team. You may not have noticed that there is an anti-racist uh, Partners for Racial Justice group that has been formed here. And a small segment of that is our eighth principal team that will be <coughs> holding discussions and workshops and Q and A's the board, our board of directors, has set for the congregation to vote on this at our next congregational meeting in December. And our board members are happy to field your questions. There are buttons. Mine says, ask me about the eighth principle. I'm happy to field those questions as well. I will say at the end of the day, no matter what this congregation decides, I'm your minister. But I know my greatest hope is that we will continue to change and evolve as Unitarian Universalists and not get stuck. The principles are not the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston didn't bring them down from Mount <laughs> Sinai, <laughs> right? And if you saw Mel Brooks, he dropped one, so we can drop some too. <laughs> the principles are living and breathing. Living and breathing. Just as we are living and breathing. Our principles are supposed to be full of joy and sorrow, heartache, unrest, a thirst for justice and they're supposed to grow as well. So this is the call that we all have as Unitarian Universalists. It's a call that I have to discern as well, because I'm not sure, do I want, do what, would I prefer this as number four or number five, or does it have to be number eight? And there's all these questions that people will figure out for us, but how do we start to embody this, right? How do we start to embody this? And so to offer up a brief testimony on the eighth principle of Unitarian Universalism, I invite Maya Wade Harper who is part of our Eighth Principle Project, to offer her testimony. Blessed be and amen. Hello. My name is Maya Wade Harper, and I first found out about the Eighth Principle when I went to the Youth Midwest Leadership School in the summer. I grew up chanting the seven principles in their purest form. They are etched to my tongue, memorized in my temple, but I find myself forgetting that they are the way I wish to live. They are a call to action and a way to interact with the world. This is why I think the eighth principle is needed. It reminds us that we must remind ourselves that we need to work to dismantle white supremacy in ourselves and our institutions. As a living tradition, it is only fair 
that we continue to learn and change as time progresses. Therefore, we are working to educate ourselves on this principle so that we can vote to adopt this principle. Impact matters. We are a group founded on white privilege, and dismantling and improving that matters. The more we can grow and learn, the better our beloved community can become. Therefore, I am advocating this principle because of the impact of breaking down these barriers that we benefit from can save our relationships. This does not mean that, the work, that once we work to adopt this principle that we are finished. Far from it. This is a very small step in a much larger picture, but it is a step worth taking. Please read the insert in your order of service for more information. And after the service, if you have any questions, feel free to ask me or others with the buttons on. We'll have buttons and more information as well. If you are a member, plan on voting to adopt this principle in December. Let's take this important step together.